following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. It's good to be back here, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I think the last time here, in fact, the last couple of times, it's rained heavily while I've been speaking. I don't know if anyone remembers that, so we're just going to wait a little bit and see what, see what happens. But, um, you know, we're st- this is a series called uh, Jesus History, in which I'm going to put on my historian's hat that I wear in my workday week to look at the subject of Jesus Christ today, and then over the next two weeks, we're going to look specifically at the documents which you call the Gospels, which are most closely associated with what we know about Jesus. And what are they like as sources for a person who lived in history? Well, that brings us to today's subject, which is, which may seem strange to you, but let me replay an event that occurred to me in class at university. Um, I was giving a lecture on the Da Vinci Code, which I believe I've actually even done here for you guys. Might have been the first time I spoke all the way back when you were at Kristen. And I was uh, in class talking about Dan Brown, of course, the Da Vinci Code. And in the course of the lecture, I started to talk about Mary Magdalene and Jesus Christ. And this one student, quite innocently, sincerely, asked this one question of me, which I had not been anticipating coming up in class. Did Jesus exist? Did Jesus exist? Now, this question was perplexing to me, and it was one I hadn't anticipated being asked because I thought it was kind of common knowledge that Jesus had existed. And as I dug a little bit deeper, I discovered that this student had been doing some reading on the internet, not necessarily a good place, ladies and gentlemen, the home of fake news and all kinds of weird theories and ideas. And he'd come across a site that challenged this idea that Jesus existed so convincingly that he could broach that subject to a lecturer in a university setting who was talking about Jesus Christ. And so today, the question we want to answer is, did Jesus exist? Some of you kind of look a little bit worried already. (laughs) Let's see where this might take us, and we'll see if our projector's working well and our remote. Yes, everything's working fine. That's good. Well, in the year following this, or just even last year, an article came out. If you're thinking this is just one random student, that is not the case. In fact, this idea, this challenge to the his, what we call the historicity of Jesus, it's a good word, historicity. It simply means, did an event take place or did a person exist in the past? Is determined, we ask, is it a historical person? And we look for the historicity of that person or that event. So it's a word to add into your vocabulary for this week and you might get to use it. The historicity of Jesus is what we're concerned about. But this idea is graining credence, unfortunately, um, for a number of reasons. And an article came out in The Guardian, a very prominent British newspaper in which they felt they needed to put an article up entitled, What is the Historical Evidence that Jesus Christ Lived and Died? Now, the only reason this came up as an article in this newspaper is because, of course, that it was a very topical 
subject, the historicity of Jesus. Now, where would this idea come from? By the way, this newspaper article told us that some 40% of people in England, when asked in a survey, did Jesus exist, said no. 40% of people in England said that Jesus didn't exist when they were asked in a survey. Now, where does the Ideas come from for the mythicist websites. Where does it come from for the student who asked me? Where does it come from for the people that prompted this Guardian article? Um, where do these ideas come from that Jesus didn't exist? I'm going to suggest two, two answers to this. The first is very brief. The second is what we're going to spend the rest of our time on this morning. The first is this, that subjects in the humanities, history, geography, and philosophy have been pushed to the side in the modern marketplace of universities and been supplanted by such things as noteworthy subjects, by the way, I'm not dismissing them, but business, accounting, and the hard sciences, etc. So the humanities, which is a completely different beast, is seen as less important than it was in the 70s and 80s, and from the 90s onwards, we've got this change. So subjects like history and geography have been sidelined in the educational system. So if you think it's strange that 40% of people in Britain believe that Jesus didn't exist, I'm going to put that down to the fact of just plain ignorance and the fact that these subjects are not being taught anymore. Because here's what we also know. A survey was undertaken of people in Britain to determine what was the highest mountain, and over half of them said the highest mountain in the British Isles was... Mount Everest. Mount Everest. Ladies and gentlemen, the average person walking down the street in London is not to be trusted <laughs> with major geographical or historical facts, ladies and gentlemen. Just so you, in case some of you don't know, why is everyone laughing? It's because Mount Everest is in the Himalayas. It's thousands of miles away. And the tallest mountain, so-called mountain, apologies for people who are from the British Isles, but the tallest mountain is Ben Nevis in Scotland. And it barely touches the toes of Mount Everest if we could get the two of them together. Secondly, though, and more worryingly, why people feel this way is that there is a trend, aside from this ignorance, is the idea that Jesus is a fictional character is something that's in fact being actively pushed and encouraged by a small and vocal group of people called mythicists. Mythicists. Now, these people, largely dwelling on the internet, believe that Jesus is a myth because although there are lots of stories about Jesus that exist and are told about him, they say that they are not historical. These are invented, his life and teaching invented by early storytellers, drawing on ancient pagan stories about such characters as genuine mythical characters such as Adonis, Attis. Bacchus, Mithra, Osiris. And they, they took these stories of these mythical people and cobbled them together and came up with a story which is a story of Jesus. Now, of course, the big question which I'm not going, another question which I'm not going to look at this morning is why would people in first century Judea take these myths? even if they would know about them, and cobble them into a story and then start spreading them around. To what purpose? This question is, is never answered. It's never answered. In fact, there is no record in the first century of any Jews anywhere reading the type of literature that ca contains these mythical stories. Not one piece of evidence. But this is what we are supposed to believe. 
And of course, this idea that Jesus didn't exist, the idea that they spread on the internet, is of course at variance with scholarly knowledge and what academics have to say about the existence of Jesus Christ. It's at wide variance. I'm going to quote to you a historian of first century Christianity. He's not a Christian. He is not Jewish. He is not um, uh, a person of faith. He's probably agnostic or even an atheist. And this is what he had to say. And by the way, there are plenty of people who look at second temple or first century Judaism and first century Christianity who are not Christians themselves or Jews. Why? Because it's just a really interesting subject. You know, Reuben said, I'm a historian of the Second World War, but I never flew a Spitfire, ladies and gentlemen. You don't have to have been a participant to have been interested in something. And that's true for academics globally. It might come as a bit of a surprise to you. But let me quote to you from this atheistic historian and what he had to say about this concerning mythicist literature. He said, I should say at the outset that none of the mythicists' literature is written by scholars trained in New Testament or early Christian studies, teaching at the major or even minor accredited theological seminaries, divinity schools, or universities, or colleges in North America or Europe. Of the thousands of scholars of early Christianity who teach at such schools, none of them, to my knowledge, has any doubt that Jesus existed. Wow, not one. There are thousands of people globally who know the languages of the ancient world. They know the textual documents of the ancient world. They have PhDs. They publish journal articles. They publish books. And not one, not one of them says that Jesus did not exist. Now, that, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the sermon. <laughs> we could end right there, of course. But it brings us to another question. It's question upon question upon question, isn't it? Why is it that these thousands of scholars and academics working in their fields believe that Jesus existed? Why is that? Well, this requires us to take a look at how historians determine whether someone is real in history or whether they are mythical. Here's what I do at my local university that I work at. I go and see the people in security because they have a safe. And in that safe is a special key. I get that special key. I go down to a special secret place behind the university where they have a secret shed. I take the secret key, I put it in the secret lock, and inside the secret shed is this. And I hop into it, open the garage door, drive out of the university, past the mega center in my beautiful silver DeLorean, out onto Otea Valley Road, and then got on State Highway 1, and then I depress the accelerator, making sure there are no laws law authority people in sight, until I get to 88 miles per hour. And then, snap, I head back into the past of the time I have preset on the flux capacitor-powered DeLorean. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that would be brilliant, wouldn't it? I would be able to go to AD 30 and take some photographs and some secret videos and bring them back and present them for you here this morning. Alas, historians do not have time machines. We don't have a Doctor Who TARDIS. We don't have an H.G. Wells time machine. And we certainly, unfortunately, don't have Dr. Emmett 
Brown's flux capacitor powered DeLorean as much as I would like it. Time travel is beyond us at this present time. Probably a good thing, I think. History also, therefore, is not about time travel, but it's also very different to science. It's not something that can be repeated. You can't repeat a historical event in a test tube like a scientist is able to do. In science, you can confirm a hypothesis by experimentation, observation. You can't do that with the past, ladies and gentlemen. And if you think about some aspects of the past, like the Second World War, it's a good thing as a historian of the Second World War, I can't recreate it today and create the same type of mayhem and havoc that was produced some 75 or so years ago. So what do historians do? How do historians know that Jesus existed? Well, it comes down to one word, and that word is evidence. The other word, which makes it a second word, is evidence. And the third word is evidence. And the fourth, well, I think you understand, it's this kind of infinite progression. It comes down to evidence. Historians really work like lawyers. It's analogous to working like a lawyer in a court case. A lawyer presents and cross-examines evidence. And the stronger the evidence, the stronger the case. That is how we work. All historians working in the field of early church history, whether they are Christians, whether they are agnostic, whether they are atheists, believe Jesus existed. Why? Because it is the weight of the evidence for his existence is stronger than the weight of the evidence for his non-existence. Can you see that? The weight of evidence for his existence is so strong that they are without doubt about whether a person called Jesus Christ was a real person who walked this earth 2,000 years ago. Historians then have evidence, and that's what we're going to look at now. We're going to see what is this evidence that convinces those thousands of academics that Jesus is a real person in history. Well, to do this... I need to put up a timeline, and we will have Jesus here on our chart, and we might print this up next week for the church notices so you've got a copy of this, because we're going to revisit this kind of timeline a number of times over the course of this next three weeks. We have Jesus. Now, the dates I have in here are slightly contested, but I'm going from 6 BC to AD 30, but I could have just as easily gone to AD 33. But this is our timeline. It's our starting point. What do we have as historians that tell us that Jesus existed as a person? Well, believe it or not, that leather-covered, gilt-edged, sometimes containing a ribbon in it, and maybe a little bit of a concordance and sometimes study notes, that Bible, B-I-B-L-E, Holy text, writ, sacred scripture, for a historian, is a set of historical documents. If I could, if we could take a, a, a Christian Bible and we would take out the New Testament. A historian, what they do is they would take those documents that are in there, 27 of them, and they would divide them up and categorize them. 
And that is exactly what happens. You see, when we think about the Bible as Christians, it's a sacred text that guides us, that provides us with instruction, it gives us hope, it builds our faith, it let us, lets us know about the future, the past, and who Jesus is. But for historians, it's a collection of historical documents, and they can shed light on the past, including the social, economic, cultural, and yes, political world in which they were written in. You see, those gospels, for you as Christians, are incredibly important spiritually, but for the historian, I learned something about how people lived 2,000 years ago from those documents, 27 of them. It's a collection of Four biographies. Now, they're a bit different to the biographies we use today, but in the context of the ancient world, that's exactly the type of biography we would expect. You call them the Gospels. We then have a collection of letters. These are great primary documents for any historian, a whole range of letters. We have one history, and at the end of it, an apocryphal text to help you go to sleep at night, ladies and gentlemen, um, but I'm not sure if it's the best thing to be reading in the late hours of the night. Now, of course, these are our sources. Now, immediately, some of you are thinking, well, what do the mythicists have to say about these sources? Well, the first criticism they would have about the Gospels, and let's put them on our timeline. We have Mark's Gospel, somewhere between 50 to 60 AD, Matthew's Gospel, 60 to 70, Luke 60 to 70, and then John 70 to 90. Now, these dates are fairly conservative. I could quite happily push them a little bit earlier if I wanted to, but I'm just going to keep it kind of neutral with the dates that we have up in here. What would they say about them? Well, you know what the biggest criticism is, and it's incredibly scary. It should be um, very worrying to you, ladies and gentlemen, because I think perceive many of you are Christians here today. You should be very concerned about this. They are biased. <laughs> they are biased. <laughs> and because they are biased, they should immediately be pushed to the side. I have news for you. That is a very weak criticism, simply because what is not biased? What is not biased? You know, even a list with dates and events next to them, is a chronicle of things that happened. You say, that's an unbiased list, Adam. On the contrary, that is a bias towards the belief, one in the primacy of the Gregorian calendar, compared to the calendars used in other societies, and it's also biased towards the belief that history is linear, and it's worth charting in that manner. So even a list of just dates and events has a bias in it because of the way it's been formulated by people who think a certain way. Now this brings us to the idea of biography. I can tell you something about all biography, all letters, written documents like this. Every single one has a bias. And if you were to discard primary documents simply on the basis there was bias, we would have nothing. I would have nothing as a historian. There would be nothing to look at. There would be nothing to delve into. There'd be nothing to read because it has bias. But you know what there, what's cool about bias? Historians like bias. Because bias tells us more than just the chronicling of dates and events. It tells us what people are thinking as they write it. 
and that they are perhaps part of a larger group who share that same belief system and think the same way. In other words, it's a window into the minds of the people of the past. So when people say they're biased and they should be ignored because they've got bias in them, the historian takes the complete opposite perspective. They love that sort of stuff because it tells us what is going on. Think about biographies of Churchill or Lincoln. Most people who write a biography about Winston Churchill like Winston Churchill. They're inspired by Winston Churchill. Does that mean that Winston Churchill didn't exist? Or that those biographies should not be considered because the author has chosen Winston Churchill because they like Winston Churchill? Of course not. That would be completely unreasonable. And it would be unreasonable to discount these four biographies simply on the basis that the people who wrote them really like the person they were writing about. That is undeniable. The next criticism from the mythicists is that they are too far removed from the events upon which they purport to report on. If you look at this, I'm going to tell you that in the ancient world, these are really early sources. Most historians who are writing about a person in the ancient world would love to have documents these rich and this close to the events that they cover or the life of the person they're looking at. They are, in fact, very close. Jesus' earthly life ran, from the early, ran until the early 30s. Not the 1930s, ladies and gentlemen. There's nothing in front of the 3-0 on this occasion. We're going right back 2,000 years ago. John's Gospel, the last one that was written, and we know it was written at, at the very latest in the 90s, If we take that into account, the Gospels were written only 20 to 60 years after the life of Jesus. 20 to 60 years. Now, I'm going to spend the next two weeks looking at these Gospels, so we're not going to spend any more time on this this morning. But I want you to know those are incredibly close. And as I say, historians who look at other people 2,000 years ago would love to have this type of material this early to the life of the person they are investigating. Well, in addition to this, we have other sources. So these are our first set of sources that convince historians that Jesus existed as a real person. The next set are Paul's letters. Now, because of the way the New Testament is organized, we often think that Paul's letters were written after the Gospels because they appear after the Gospels in that order within inside the New Testament. But in actuality, they are written before, written sometime in the 50s through to the 60s, when, of course, Paul lost his life at the hands of Nero in that period. These letters were only written, some of them, 20 years after the life of Jesus, just two decades, very, very close as well. And they are in large number. We also have some other early sources, which we don't have time to look at today, earlier than this, and they fall into what we call speeches. Speeches that appear in the book of Acts. You've probably never considered this. But the book of Acts has a whole lot of speeches that are delivered by Peter on the day of Pentecost. How close was that day of Pentecost and that speech that is preserved to when Jesus rose from the dead? And we have other sermons and speeches that appear that are evidence to the existence of a real historical person. But more than that, we have something even closer than these speeches, the letters, and the Gospels. 
Inside Paul's letters, he sometimes records creeds. Creeds. These are faith-based statements that are praises of someone's position or belief in Jesus Christ. Did you know this? That there are creeds contained within those letters. In other words, there are things that Paul picked up from somewhere else and decided to include in his letters. And the one I want us to look at comes from a very early date. Look at this. 31 to 33 AD. There is a creed in one of Paul's letters that historians push right up to the life of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at this. It comes from Paul's letter, first letter to the church at Corinth. This was probably written around 53 AD. And inside of it, he starts to talk about a creed which he gave to them at the time, which he picked up elsewhere. Let's look at this. He said, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James and all the apostles. How do we know this is a creed? He starts off with a creedal or formulaic introduction. The very beginning part of this is very common to the first century when somebody is going to introduce something to memorize or that they did not write themselves. Paul says, for I delivered to you people at Corinth, first of all, that which I also had received. This predates me. In fact, it predates his Christian experience in all likelihood. In addition to this, there's repetition in here, another indication that it's a creed. See, creeds are designed for memorization. Look at the repeated phrases through this portion of text. He's got in here, that Christ, that he, that he, that he was seen by Cephas, that he was seen by, that he was seen by. All of this is conclusive evidence. This is a creedal document. And what do we know about it, ladies and gentlemen? We know that historians, whether they are Christians, whether they are non-Christians, all almost universally believe that this creed was created within two, one to two years after Jesus' crucifixion. You just need to... Think about it for a second. One to two years after Jesus was crucified, we have a portion of text. Wow. And you know what this text tells us? It tells us that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. So those people who say that the story of this kind of Allegedly, mythical resurrection is something that was added later into the narrative about Jesus is simply rebutted by the historical evidence we have. And in this case, a very early creed. Think about it. Within 12 to 24 months, 12 to 24 months is when this creed could have been 
um, brought into existence by people at the time. So the resurrection is not a later invention that's just been added in. No, 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 ladies and gentlemen. It was there right at the beginning. It was there right at the beginning. Well, let's go to our timeline and let's see what we've got in here. We've got these Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, just jam-packed with all rich historical material. We have Paul's letters that predate that. We have the speeches, and we have this terrific creedal statement. In all of them, they are written, ladies and gentlemen, from the perspective of Jesus being a real person in history, a historical reality. Now, outside of these 27 documents, some of you brought today in hard copy, others electronic copy, some of you have kept it up here, we have other Christian sources. Do you realize that there are other Christian, there's other pieces of Christian literature from within the 100 years of period after Jesus' life, which is principally what we're looking at? We're looking at within 100 years of Jesus' life, what have we got? There are other Christian sources. We only have time for one this morning, and it's from a man called Clement. Let's have a look at Clement in here. Now, that, of course, is not Clement. I got bored. I got bored. You, know, you get all these pictures, and I'm trying to find historical pictures that look like someone who might look like someone. Of course, we actually don't know what Jesus looked like. We don't know what Paul looked like. I've had to make artistic judgments, and I think I've been pretty good so far. I think we could all say, Adam, you've done a great job. Okay, but this one here is one of the band members for ZZ Top. So it's, clear, it's clearly not a, a favorite of mine. I just took the liberty of doing that. I'm, I don't know how he'd feel about that today. Don't send him a letter um, or a text. But what we've got in here is, is Clement with a beard, but he doesn't have the spinning guitar, um, I'm sure, in um, the first century. Anyway, what did, but look at where Clement wrote. He wrote about 95 AD, and he wrote a letter. This is just one of many documents from this period uh, by a Christian in Rome to leaders in Corinth. Now, I'll just say something and prefer, uh, prefix this by I find it interesting the problems Corinth had because Paul had to write them two letters, and they're not short letters. And then after Paul, we get a letter from Clement to Corinth, and it seems that the same problems that had existed in this church in Paul's day still exist today, because let's find out what Clement has to say. In it, he wants leaders to avoid jealousy and a thirst for power. He quotes extensively from the Old Testament. He makes references, um, numerous references to the historical Jesus. He talks about his sufferings before our eyes. His, uh, he talks about Jesus' gentleness and patience. He talks about Jesus coming from Jacob according to the flesh. He talks about Jesus' blood being poured out for our salvation. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Clement is in no doubt that Jesus existed as a real person in history. And we could have looked at other people, notably um, Ignatius of Antioch, but time is against us because we're moving right along on our timeline the Gospels, these biographies, Paul's letters, the speeches, the creeds, other Christian documents. But there are non-Christian sources outside of the New Testament and this corpus of Christian documents that talk about Christ. Not a great deal, but really terrible evidence for the mythicists these non-Christian sources, and we're going to look at three of them that fall within this 100 years after the life of Jesus. The first one we're going to look at is the famous Jewish historian Josephus, and we'll follow Josephus up with 
our man Pliny the Younger. I know some of you are expecting me to say that. Those scholars of first century Christianity. Um, would anyone like to venture who else we're going to look at? Famous Roman historian called, starts with a T. Tacitus, I think I might, maybe that was what someone was saying. Very good work if you did say that. We are going to look at Tacitus and look at the dates in here. 93 AD, 112 and 117. What do these non-Christian sources have to say? Do they present Jesus as a real person in history? Well, let's turn immediately to Josephus. There are two references to Jesus in Josephus's book, Jewish Antiquities, written around AD 93. We're going to look at the second of these because it's simpler, cleaner, less problematic, and there's no debate about it. And this text, you can read as follows. The high priest assembled the Sanhedrin of Judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who is called Christ, whose name was James. Now, the principal reason for Josephus writing this is to talk about the death of James, who was a prominent leader in the Christian church in the first century, thereby backing up what the book of Acts says. But so people know, remember this is a Jewish author, so it's for a Jewish audience and for a Roman audience, he then points out the most prominent person associated with James, that everyone would recognize. Who is that? Jesus. And how do we know Jesus had a brother called James? Because in the biographies or the Gospels, this is mentioned twice, that he had a brother called James. So we have a Jewish historian here. And what I love about this text is, look at what it has to say here. Who was called Christ? You see, this is not some Christian who's added something in here. This is from a Jewish person who's probably highly skeptical of these claims, doesn't believe this claim, but it was what people said about Jesus. He knows that much, and he puts that in the text so it helps people identify who it is. Some people called him Christ or the Messiah. Well, this brings us to our next source, which is Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger. What do I want to say on Pliny? Well, Pliny was writing a letter to the Emperor Trajan. So this is not just some insignificant piece of correspondence. Um, probably even more important than you writing to Jacinda. Um, if you felt so inclined to send her a missive or a letter encouraging her or otherwise, whatever you'd like to do. Um, Pliny was writing a letter to the Emperor Trajan in the year 112. And look at what he has to say. He said they were in the habit of meeting on a fixed day, certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit fraud, theft or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate, then reassemble and partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. The latter part seems odd to you and I, but it should not because we've just partaken of the communion table. And in the first century, many pagans or non-Christians believed that the Followers of Jesus were cannibals. 
there was a rumor that circulated through the Roman Empire that because Christians talked about partaking of Christ's body and his blood, they misconstrued that to ideas of cannibalism without realizing it was symbolic, talking about the bread and the wine. But look at this. You can see in here that Pliny believes that this person, Jesus, was a real person. But also, there's something in here that they don't quite understand as to a God. And can't you see in here the things that Christians said they would do? I think this is worthy of a sermon to us today, this kind of high moral behavior that should characterize a Christian's life. The teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, is all reflected here in what these Christians said you had to do, further confirming and linking it into those 27 historical documents of the New Testament. We're heading towards the end, ladies and gentlemen. We're nearly, nearly there. We're up to Tacitus, some 20 years after Josephus, but within our 100 years after the life of Jesus Christ, we have Tacitus, a great historian, a Roman who covered Roman history in his book called The Annals from the Emperor Tiberius through to Nero. So that's from 48 until the 60s, somewhere in the 60s. And of course, who was the emperor when Jesus was alive? Tiberius. Earlier, Caesar Augustus, but for his ministry, it's Tiberius. And let's see what happens here. Tacitus picks up the story with the great fire in Rome. There was a massive fire that swept through Rome in 64. Many people felt that Nero had had people light the fire because he wanted to engage in a large amount of public works, which is terrible when you think about it, wouldn't it, isn't it? It'd be kind of like our mayor. Is it Goff? Is that right? You know, wanting to clean out the North Shore, so he had a whole lot of people set fire to the North Shore. He'd be out of a job tomorrow, ladies and gentlemen. I'm telling you that now. But what took place in Rome is a lot of people lost their lives, and people said... Nero had this fire lit, and look at all the deaths and the suffering. So Nero did what any good male would do. He passes the blame. <laughs> he blames shifts hugely. But look at who he blames shift to. And remember, this is a non-Christian pagan author. And this is what he has to say. He said, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and afflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for a moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Which sounds a little bit like Hamilton, doesn't it, ladies and gentlemen? But we'll just leave that aside and we won't get parochial here because we're all in love with all New Zealanders and lovely Aotearoa. The point here is that this is kind of a disinterested chronicler telling the story about Nero, and he inserts this amazing set of historical data. And think about its early date. What's in here? 
Christians got their name from a historical person called Christus or Christ. That Christ died a painful death. Do you know that's actually contained in those other 27 documents I talked about in the New Testament? That's exactly what they say. He was crucified. And that this occurred during the reign of Tiberius. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? That's what we find in those other primary documents that Christians carry around with them every day. That it was at the hands of Pontius Pilate. I wonder if that's found in those documents as well. That Christianity started in Jerusalem. That it had spread to Rome, which you can find in the book of Acts. This text here, this primary document from the ancient world, is jam-packed full of data that corresponds exactly with the information we have from those other 27 documents, the, non, uh, the Christian documents outside of the New Testament, and from other sources, an incredibly rich source. Well, we're going to tie this all up in a little bow right now. We are at the end of my presentation You recall I gave you a quote from the beginning of this sermon, and it was from a non-Christian scholar who's an expert in first century Christianity. That man had been raised a Christian, I think if I recall correctly, in an evangelical home. He decisively and very publicly turned his back on Christianity. I say publicly later. He's written about it in the forwards in a number of his books, many that have appeared as New York Times bestsellers, believe it or not. And he has no real compassion for Christianity, no real interest in Christianity, but he is an historian who is concerned about the evidence that we've looked at today, a whole raft of it. And let's look at our chart just one more time, which we're going to print up for you next week. But look at all of this evidence that exists. Historians are left with really no alternative. What does this individual have to say? It's a guy called Bart Ehrman. He's in North Carolina. He's not a Christian, but this is what he had to say based on all his study and his investigations in this area of first century Christianity. Here's what he had to say He said, I'm not a Christian. I have no interest in promoting a Christian cause or Christian agenda. But as an historian, I think evidence matters and the past matters. And for anyone to whom both evidence and the past matter, a dispassionate consideration of the case makes it quite plain Jesus did exist. Jesus did exist. Jesus did exist. And you know there's a portion of text from those 27 documents that reads as follows. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, we could turn this around, ladies and gentlemen, when we say Jesus existed, take it from Jesus did exist, past tense, to present tense. Jesus does exist, future tense. Jesus always will exist. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Jesus that appears in all these historical documents.
is the same Jesus you and I know and future people will know as well. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.